and today we'll be reading from Joshua 7. It's on the front page of your handout. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and don't worry the whole army, for only a few, few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were rooted by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and stuck, struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring us across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been rooted by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward, and the Zerites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with Israel, took Achan son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had, to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Thanks, Aaron.
Uh, my name's Ben. I'm one of the staff workers here with the Christian Union, and uh, I'll be uh, taking us through these passages today. And uh, we're going to be doing uh, all of Joshua sort of five to eight. Uh, we probably won't go through every verse, but um, if you've got a Bible with you there, it'll be helpful because we're going to cover a fair chunk of text, and we're going to do even more uh, next week when we'll do the rest of the book of Joshua in a single week. It's amazing, but it can be done. (laughs) The question I've got for you uh, as we kick off today is, do you believe in the death penalty? You might like to take a moment and uh, chat to the person next to you. Say, "Do uh, do you believe in the death penalty? Do you think there should be a death penalty? Uh, If so, under what circumstances? If not, why not? Okay? Go, chat to the person next to you. do there, just to get us thinking. Sorry to cut you off, but you'll have more time to talk afterwards. Um, Let's hear back from a couple of people. Uh, Anyone think, yes, we should have the death penalty? Yeah, Alistair? Yep. Any particular reason? Uh, In what circumstances? Well, if they've done something like truly horrible, say like murdered a dozen people, and we know for sure that they did it and that they're not sorry, then Okay, so it feels like there are some crimes that are worthy of the death penalty. Okay? Uh, anyone argue no, we shouldn't have death penalty? Yes? But also, if you're. Who says that no death penalty means that they walk free? You could still be locked up. Right, okay, so you could have people yeah, still get locked up, yes, of course. <laughs> yep. Prisoner crowding. Pri- <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fairly brutal. <laughs> uh, yeah. What's that, Kenan? Yeah. Oh, okay. On the costs of it, yeah. Yeah. I reckon we've we've probably got some reservations over it. Like Alistair said, if we can be certain that they did it, but how confident can we be about 
them actually doing it. And I think there's also some uncomfortableness with are we really in that position to make that kind of call? Is it legit for us to make that call? Yes. Oh, Mm. That person simply does not deserve to live. Okay. So it's beyond reason doubt that that person is being caught doing that act. Right. So let that person live whether they're in prison or not. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, this is great. We've got some discussion and debate going on. Uh, the reason I raised the question about the death penalty is not because I particularly want to persuade you about it for or against, uh, but because in the chapters we're looking at today we actually see God executing the death penalty on a whole bunch of people. Uh, But before we get to that, let's let's think about where we are in the story so far, uh, the story of the Bible. So here we go. Uh, God has made the world, recorded in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, He's made it good. He's made humans to rule the world under him. But Genesis 3, we've rebelled against him, uh, which is what theologians call the fall. Um, We've fallen from uh, that position that we had uh, under God of uh, being in his presence and uh, being sinless before him. Now we've rebelled against him. That's what the Bible calls sin. Uh, And right from the beginning, God's punishment for that has been death and judgment. He warned Adam and Eve right at the start that if they took from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... On the day that they ate of it, they would die. And we see, as we read on through Genesis 5 and so on, uh, people dying again and again and again. Um, And the Bible's assertion is that uh, that's that's not just a natural phenomenon for humans. That's actually a punishment for our sin. But from Genesis chapter 12... Uh, God starts to reveal his plan to rescue us from sin and death. Uh, So he appears to a man called Abraham and he tells him to leave his land and to move to the land of Canaan. Um, And God promises to give Abraham many descendants who will form a great nation, that he'll give them the land of Canaan uh, and that they'll have a special relationship with him where they'll experience his blessing instead of his curse. And that through them, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Uh, And then in Genesis chapter 15, uh, God reaffirms his covenant with Abram. uh, And he says, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, that is, the land of Canaan, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So that's uh, God's promise to Abraham, and now it's 400 years later, as we hit Joshua chapter 5. God has rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, He's brought them across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan that he promised them. And it's here that we meet the Amorites again. So chapter 5, verse 1. 
Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So after 400 years of slaves in Egypt, the Lord is finally about to give Israel rest in the land that he promised them. And he's about to execute the death penalty on the people of the land. Uh, in fact, in the chapters that we're going to look at today, we're going to see two cities, Jericho and I, completely wiped out. Uh, and that probably makes us feel pretty uncomfortable because it's hard not to think of that as genocide, right? The total destruction of a whole city, two whole cities. Uh, in fact, I think this is probably... Uh, one of the passages that Richard Dawkins was thinking about when he wrote his 2006 book, The God Delusion, uh, and in particular wrote this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, Racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. <laughs> he gets sort of gets on quite a roll, doesn't he? Uh, I think uh, he was getting pretty excited with that paragraph. But he does raise some legitimate questions, doesn't he? When we read something like the Book of Joshua, I mean, we can all get on board with Exodus, can't we? Like a nation being freed from slavery, that's wonderful, that's great, I'm here for that. But for God to then use them to massacre another nation, well, that seems pretty awful, uh, maybe even racist. Is God a bigot who thinks that his own people, the people of Israel, can do no wrong, uh, even to the point of committing genocide against other nations? Is that what's going on in the book of Joshua? That God is racist towards Israelites or racist against Canaanites? Well, before we leap to that conclusion, uh, we ought to remember back to Genesis 15 that we had a look at before, uh, where the Lord said that it would be 400 years before Abraham's descendants would return and occupy Canaan. And why was it that it would be 400 years? Well, he says it's because the Amorite sin has not yet reached its full measure. And from what we know of the Amorites and the Canaanites, they were awful. They were sexually immoral, they were cruel, and above all, they were known for burning their children as sacrifices to the god Moloch. Uh, so um, God warns Israel about this. Uh, back in the book of Deuteronomy, he says, The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you've driven them out and settled in their land and they've been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? We'll do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. 
Uh, and in case you think that's just sort of um, Israelite propaganda, uh, here's Wikipedia um, talking about Phoenician sites throughout the Mediterranean. So the Canaanites are, are part of the Phoenician people group. Wikipedia says, uh, in Phoenician sites throughout the Western Mediterranean, except for Spain and Ibiza, archaeology has revealed fields full of buried urns containing the burnt remains of human infants and lambs covered by carved stone monuments. These fields are conventionally referred to as tophets by archaeologists after their location in the Bible. The proportion of lamb to human remains differs by site. At Carthage uh, in North Africa, 31% of the urns contained lambs. At Tharos, it was 47%. The bone fragments were subjected to uneven temperatures, indicating that they were burnt on an open-air pyre over the course of several hours. The remains were then collected and placed in an urn, sometimes mixing in bones from other infants or lambs, suggesting that multiple infants slash lambs were burnt on the same pyre. So what we're seeing here is sacrifices, uh, sacrifices of infants. So the Amorites and the Canaanites are not just sort of a nice, innocent little group of people, you know, happily pottering around their vegetable gardens or something. They were cruel, barbaric and immoral. And far from being the petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak of Richard Dawkins' imagination, the Lord has given them 400 years to repent. And in that time, they've only gotten worse. Dawkins accuses God of being an infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. But actually, that's the Amorites and the Canaanites. They're the ones who are burning their own children in the fire. They're the ones who have rebelled against God and have turned away and done these evil things. And after 400 years of seeing that getting worse and worse and worse, the Lord is finally going to bring justice. God is going to destroy the Amorites and the Canaanites, punish them for their sins, And he's going to use the nation of Israel to do it. But before we get to any of the destruction of the Canaanites, we get this chapter, chapter 5 in Joshua, uh, where we discover three events that show us that although the Canaanites and the Amorites are definitely the bad guys, Israel are not the good guys either. So if you've got your Bibles there with, uh, with you, have a look at um, chapter 5, verse 5. So we've got these three events that happen <clears throat> before they enter the land. We get uh, a renewal of circumcision, we get the Passover, and we get this weird encounter that Joshua has with the commander of the army of the Lord. So firstly, circumcision, chapter 5, verse 5. All the people that came out, that is, came out of Egypt, had been circumcised. But all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. 
that is, the generation of Israelites who God brought out of Egypt, grumbled against him in the desert, and their punishment for that was that they would never see the promised land. They would die in the desert. The punishment for sin was death. Israel sinned and God executed them, just as he intends to execute the Canaanites and the Amorites for their sin. So is Dawkins right that God is racist? It doesn't look like it here. It looks more like he just hates sin. It doesn't matter whether you're Israelite or Canaanite. You sin, you die. Same again with the second event, uh, verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped, oops, while camped at Gilgal... On the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. And now, the Passover meal is a reminder to Israel of how God rescued them from Egypt. Uh, the Egyptians had put in place a policy of executing all the uh, sons of the Hebrews who were born, all the Israelite boys. And so God made the punishment fit the crime. That every firstborn son in Egypt would die but the firstborn sons of Israel would escape. Why is it that the Israelite sons would escape? Is it because they're good and the Egyptians are bad? No, the Egyptians are definitely bad. That's why they're being punished. But Israel escape only because each family slaughters a lamb and paints the blood over the doorway of their house. They don't escape automatically by being Israelite. They only escape if a lamb dies in their place. If they did that, then the angel of death would pass over that house and leave the firstborn sons untouched. Egypt were punished for their sin, but Israel didn't escape because they were the good guys. They only escaped because a lamb died in their place. And thirdly, uh, verse 13, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Whether it's crusades or jihad or storming the US Capitol, uh, people are always keen to claim that God is on their side. But when Joshua asks this stranger that he meets, who seems to be some kind of angelic being sent to command God's heavenly armies... When he asks him, are you for us or for our enemies? The man literally says, no. No. See, God has come to execute judgment. And the question is not, is God on our side? But are we on his? Israel are not the good guys. And God is not de facto on their side, right or wrong. 
And that reality is reinforced over the next three chapters. See, in chapter 6, the people of Israel approached the city of Jericho. Uh, It's a massive city with huge fortified walls and, you know, Israel are just these people who have been wandering in the desert for 40 years. They don't have catapults or siege engines or anything like that. But that won't stop God bringing judgment against the inhabitants of Jericho. Um, uh, Sorry, I've left out that bit. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everyone straight in. Now, that's a heck of a military strategy. Uh, but it's not something that... Uh, you or I would dream up. But its point, I think, is to show us that it is God who is conquering. It's not Israel. This is the Lord executing judgment. And so it happens exactly as he says it would. The priests carry the Ark of the Covenant, which is sort of seen as God's footstool, that he sits enthroned above. And it's carried around Jericho once a day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day. And then verse 20, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. It's a massacre and a terrifying one at that. And the death sentence is carried out on all the inhabitants of Jericho. But actually, it's not all, is it? Because chapter 6, verse 25, reminds us of what we saw uh, a couple of weeks ago in public meeting when we looked at Joshua chapter 2. Chapter 6, verse 25... But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. This is significant because Rahab being saved shows us that this is not about God hating Canaanites. He doesn't have some particular objection to them as Canaanites per se. It's not about God hating Canaanites, it's about Canaanites hating God. So the Canaanites who swap sides, who stop rebelling against the Lord and who put their trust in him, they're all saved. A powerless prostitute, a Canaanite woman and her family are saved without a scratch. Is it because she's a good person? No, presumably she's been engaged in all the same sort of things that the other Canaanites have been involved in. But she switched sides. She puts her trust in the Lord instead of continuing to oppose him. And she and all her family are saved. God is not anti-Canaanite. He's anti-sin. And interestingly, the account that follows in chapter 7 
shows us almost a complete mirror image of what we saw in chapter 6. Because uh, after the victory at Jericho, Israel go up to attack another city, the city of Ai. And again, they send out spies and the spies report back that, hey, look, Ai is not a very big city. We can take this out with just two or 3,000 men. And so they send up a brigade and they get absolutely smashed by the citizens of Ai. And it's a huge shock, total disaster. Chapter 7, verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord, but what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they'll surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? So you're being unfair. You said you'd be on our side. But actually the commander of the army of the Lord had told Joshua that he wasn't on his side. Yes, God has promised Israel that they'll occupy the promised land. Yes, yes, he has done that. But his purpose in bringing Israel into the land is not so they can become like the nations that were there already. It's so that they can live for him as his people in peace, in rest. If they become like the Canaanites and turn their back on him, ignore him, do their own thing, then they'll suffer the same punishment as the Canaanites. The Lord is pro-faithfulness, but he's anti-sin, and Israel have sinned. Joshua 7, verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They've violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen. They've lied. They've put them with their own possessions. That's why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So the Lord's made a covenant with Abraham, with Moses, that Israel would be his people and he would be their God. Circumcision was a sign of that covenant and they've been circumcised back in chapter 5. They've been sanctified, they've been set apart. And yet, here, almost straight away, they've been unfaithful to him again. They've just become like the other nations around them. And in doing that, they've become liable to the same punishment. The puny Israelites smashed the mighty city of Jericho because God was punishing Jericho for its sins. And the triumphant Israelites got smashed by puny little I because God was punishing Israel for her sins. And in the rest of chapter 7, we see... God expose who is at fault here. He exposes Achan, son of Kami, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, as the one who has taken the devoted things. They go through a process of working out who it is. Uh, God reveals that it's Achan. Uh, and Achan, when he's questioned by Joshua, replies, It's true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. 
When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they'd stoned the rest, they burned them. And over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Do you notice the sort of parallel, or maybe rather anti-parallel, with Rahab here? Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, switched sides and entrusted herself to God. And, chapter 6, verse 25... She lives among the Israelites to this day. While Achan, an Israelite family man, suffered the same fate as the Canaanites in Jericho because he switched sides and did not entrust himself to God. And he was killed and buried under a large pile of rocks, just like the people of Jericho. And the pile remains to this day. Rahab remains with the Israelites to this day, the author says, and the pile of rocks over Achan remains to this day. What's the picture of God that we're getting in these chapters? Is he the unjust, malevolent, misogynistic, genocidal bully of Dawkins' imagination? No. His judgment is certainly severe, but it's impartial, it's unbiased. It's not racist, it's just. To turn your back on the author of life deserves death. To treat your creator with contempt deserves destruction. And that's what God brings on the Canaanites and the Amorites and Achan the Israelite. Not because God is unjust, but because he's just. Not because he's evil, but because he hates evil and is determined to eradicate it. And he saves Israel and Rahab the Canaanite, not because they deserve it, but because he's merciful to those who throw themselves on his mercy. In the last few years in the English-speaking West, uh, I think as sort of cultures, American, British, Australian and so forth, we've become increasingly conscious of injustices in the world. Uh, We're hyper-aware of genocides, of of racism, of bigotry, of misogyny, of the injustice all around us. And people are angry about it, and rightly so. Injustice is awful. We should long for a world where justice reigns instead of evil. But the question these chapters raise for us is, if we're angry about injustice, do we really think that God is less so? The chapters we've read today tell us that, in fact, God is far more angry at injustice and sin than we are. 
We cancel each other on Twitter for our transgressions, but God executes the death penalty. That's not just how we treat each other. We might think that it's okay to spit in the face of the author of life, but God thinks that's worthy of death. And it's kind of hard to argue with, really, isn't it? To spit in the face of your creator. We increasingly recognise the injustice and evil around us. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we recognise the injustice and evil within us? And if they're within us, if we're the problem, how can we be the solution? As Jesus says, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? But I think the end of chapter 8 in Joshua points us towards a solution. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 29. After the Israelites return to Ai, after they've killed Achan, uh, they conquer Ai, and Joshua impaled the body of the king of Ai on a pole and left it there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take the body from the pole and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate, and they raised a large pile of rocks over it which remains to this day. The penalty for our sin is death, just as it was for Jericho and for Achan and for the king of Ai. But I think that in his death, the king of Ai actually points us towards a solution because he points us towards another king who died because of the sin of his people. He actually points us towards Jesus, the king of God's kingdom. See, Israel would go on sinning uh, in their history. They became like the other nations around them. They were punished for it. But God raised up a descendant of Abraham, Jesus, the king. But unlike the king of Ai, he was innocent and he always lived God's way. And yet he too, Jesus, was hung on a pole and left there until evening before being taken down and buried in a tomb of rock. But this is all part of God's plan, that he'd started with Abraham to bless all the nations on earth through Abraham's descendants, or in fact, through his descendant. Because in taking on himself the penalty of death that we deserve, Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of God, come in the flesh, took the Father's righteous anger at all the injustice, all the sin, all our rebellion against God on himself so that not just the children of Abraham might be blessed, but all the peoples of the world might be blessed through him. To quote the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified, that is, made right, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Jesus has died the death that we deserve. He copped the death penalty that we should have copped. And so he calls on all of us to be like Rahab, to switch sides, to throw ourselves on his mercy. And in doing so, he consecrates us as God consecrated Israel back there in the day of Joshua. 
He sanctifies us. He sets us apart as his people. Not to rebel like Achan did and died, but to live a life of justice and righteousness. Obedience to God. And to hold out the offer of forgiveness and eternal life, of blessing to every people, every nation, every language and every tongue. Not because we are good people and the others are bad, but because Jesus has taken the death penalty that we deserve. Will you pray with me? Father, please forgive us for our evil, for the times where we have rebelled against you. And thank you for Jesus, who has taken the death penalty that we deserve. Father, please transform us by your Holy Spirit, that we might be a people who live in obedience to you, living a life of goodness and justice and righteousness. And we pray that others might see that and stand not in awe of us, but in awe of you and all that you have done for us and for them. In Jesus' name, amen.